We are, uh, this morning we, we come to the end of our short series that we've been having through uh, the Gospel of Mark and certain sections of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we find uh, what we've been doing is trying to look specifically at questions that display the authority of Christ, questions that display the authority of Jesus Christ in many ways. And, and so far we've seen uh, those, those questions taking many forms, but here is a list of what we've looked at so far. We've seen Jesus' authority comes from his identity. So we, we saw the question, who do you say I am, as Jesus asked his disciples in chapter 8. We've seen his authority to teach, that as Jesus was teaching, the crowd said, what is this, a new teaching and with authority, at the end of chapter 1. We saw his authority to speak truth, as the Pharisees and the teachers of the law challenged him with the question, why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders? And Jesus, of course, rebukes by saying, no, you have misunderstood what God's word is about and what true relationship with him is. We see his authority to forgive sin as the, the teachers of the law think, who is this man? As Jesus heals this man, forgives this man's sin, the paralyzed man in chapter 2, and they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Only God alone. And he did forgive sins as he walked this earth as God incarnate in Jesus Christ. Jesus has authority over the natural world. As he calms the storm after having a restful sleep in the middle of the storm. And the disciples say, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him at the end of chapter 4. And then last week, we saw his authority over the spiritual world. And we see demons even ask him, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? The demons even shudder at him because of his authority. And this morning, we conclude this whole series uh, by considering Jesus' authority to call disciples. And to help us in that, we're going to engage mainly with the passage at the very end of chapter 8 of Mark's Gospel. Uh, so we're going to read that now, although we will be referring to a couple of other passages before we turn back to Mark chapter 8. But Mark chapter 8, the very last paragraph, verses 34 to 38. So please do look at that with me. Um, if you have a copy of God's Word there, or please lift one of the, the Red Pew Bibles in front of you. And actually, if you don't have a, a physical copy of God's Word, um, either with you or at home, then please take that as our gift to you. We'd love you to have a copy of God's Word. So uh, Mark chapter 8, verse, starting at verse 34, let me read down to the end of the chapter. Then he, that's Jesus, called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And dear God, we pray that as we turn to your word, that you would speak powerfully. Father, I pray that your spirit would, would inhabit us as we hear. And we wouldn't just, therefore, be hearers of your word, but we would go from this place as doers of it too. Help us, God. Speak powerfully, we pray, by your spirit, in the truth of your word. Amen. And so in verse 36 and 37, of course, we see a couple of questions that Jesus asks here. Jesus says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? And this is essentially Jesus' argument here. What good is it for someone to invest everything in their life and lose it all in the end because they haven't been a disciple of me? And so in these words, we see the, the great challenge of Jesus that he's laying down for the crowd. 
that choosing to follow him as his disciple means choosing to leave their own life behind and walk in the way of Jesus. And that decision is not one to be taken lightly. Quite the opposite, in fact, the call of Jesus is a call to follow, and it's a call that is all-encompassing. It's a call that is life-altering. And as he states in that phrase, which may be well familiar to many of us, it's a call in verse 34 to deny themselves and to take up their cross and to follow him. And that sounds challenging, doesn't it? It sounds, it's a weighty call. And in order to respond to that weighty call, we must therefore recognize the authority of the one who's making that call. See, if, if, if this isn't someone that we think worthy of a life like this, worthy of denying myself, worthy of taking up my cross, worthy of following this person, then of course we're not going to answer that. But if we do see the biblical truth of who it is that's making this call, then we will take this, this wonderful offer of a life very seriously indeed. And, and throughout this series, we, we've sought to understand more and more of the authority of Jesus Christ. And as we conclude now with the calling of his disciples, I think we can draw a lot of what we've already seen together as we consider the authority of the one who makes this all-encompassing, life-altering call to discipleship. See, so far we've seen that he is the one who has authority because of who he is. Who do you say I am? You are the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the one who brings words of life through his teaching. He is the one who speaks truth, indeed speaks the very words of God, because, of course, Jesus is God incarnate. He is the one who, he is the only one who can grant forgiveness from sin. He is the one who has created everything. He's the one who we saw a couple of weeks ago, creation itself listens to when he speaks. He is the one who is supremely and conclusively powerful and authoritative over the spiritual realm. This is the one who now issues the call to discipleship to deny everything, take up your cross and follow him. And so because we see that this is who he is, then the call that he makes is worthy of following. And so when we see him more clearly, then we realize that nothing can compare to him. Nothing is more valuable. Nothing can be more enticing. Nothing can be more fulfilling, more life-giving than Jesus Christ himself. And the Apostle Paul may have been speaking in a slightly different context, but I think the words ring true here from Philippians 3, that this call to discipleship, as we answer it as disciples, we echo Paul's words and say, I consider everything a loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. See, Christ Jesus is of such value that nothing compares to knowing him. Therefore, the weighty, seemingly weighty call to deny myself take up my cross and follow him is one of joy because of who is calling us and because of the authority that he has. And there are some very striking realities about the call that Jesus makes to his disciples. And this morning, I just want to consider four characteristics of the call to be a disciple of Jesus. What does it mean to be a call? Why is that call such good news? And we'll see from a couple of passages in Mark Earlier, earlier in Mark's gospel, and then we'll finish off by thinking about that passage from Mark chapter 8. And so we see these four things. We see the urgent call of Christ. We see the purposeful call of Jesus, the costly call of Jesus, and the joyful call of Jesus. The call to be a disciple of Jesus is urgent, it is purposeful, it is costly, and it is joyful. 
And so let's think firstly about this urgent call of Christ. And I invite you to turn back right to the first chapter of Mark's gospel where we see Jesus calling his first disciples. And I just want to read a couple of examples here, starting in verse 16 of Mark chapter 1. And so Jesus has just been baptized. Jesus himself has just declared his mission, as we see in verse 15. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And then he goes out to call his first disciples. We'll pick it up in verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. And then if you can skip over to chapter 2, verse 14, we see him calling Levi. Once again, Jesus went out. This is starting at verse 13, sorry, of chapter 2. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth, Follow me, Jesus said to him. Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. See, we see the the shocking simplicity of these interactions. Jesus is walking by, simply calls, follow me, and these disciples leave everything that they know, everything that they have, and do exactly that. He calls, and people follow. And there's not a lot of extra information about what, what has gone on before, how much these, these folks knew about Jesus, how much they had heard his teaching. That's not given to us here in Mark's account anyway. But all we're told is the simple reality that Jesus calls, people follow. And it happens immediately. At once they left their nets. Without delay, Jesus called and they followed. They left, <laughs> and the, the, the James and John just leave their, their father and the hired men in the boat and run to follow Jesus. There's an urgency here. And not only is the call urgent, but the fact that Jesus issued the call was a little unconventional at best, if not shocking in the current, in the, in the context of the day. See, the idea of discipleship was not new. In Jewish culture, there were disciples, generally rabbis who taught the law would have had disciples. But the way that Jesus does this is completely new. See, to be a disciple meant asking a rabbi if you could sit with them. Rabbis didn't recruit. They didn't have a drive. They didn't call people to them. But Jesus does. He calls. And without much in the way of background information, Mark simply records that Jesus calls. He goes to the people. He goes to his people and calls them to himself. And the striking thing about that is there's nothing inherent about these gentlemen who we've just read about that would make us or make the people of the day think that they were worthy to be called by such a teacher. But Jesus calls them anyway. And in doing so, I think not only does he show the urgency of the call, but he shows his grace. I love how Daniel Aiken describes this. There's no prerequisite to following him. This is a grace call. He does not tell them to improve their moral character or their social acceptability. Jesus finds them where they are and he simply calls in effect, come, come as you are, but come. You must and come right now. They are to follow immediately and in faith. This was a radical call for those fishermen to be sure. And it is no less radical today. Isn't that true? Jesus comes to us and invites relationship. So Jesus called his disciple. And that was odd in the context in the culture. But the second thing that's slightly odd given first century life is that 
is how Jesus calls and what he calls them to. See, when, when disciples gathered around a rabbi, they were there to hear the rabbi's understanding of the law. The rabbi, in a sense, was a means to an end. The disciples wanted a greater understanding of the law, and so they went to a decent rabbi. Not so with Jesus. His call is not come to me and learn about something else. It is simply follow me. Jesus is not an end, a means to an end. He is the end goal of discipleship. If discipleship is about knowing more about God, being formed into the character of that, that, that is a life worthy of God, if it is indeed being forgiven of sin and welcomed into relationship with our Heavenly Father, then Jesus is the end goal. You don't need anything else. We don't come to Jesus for anything. We don't use him as a conduit to get to something else. No, Jesus is the goal of discipleship. See, the, the call Jesus made to these first disciples was a radical call. It was an urgent call. And it was an offer of grace. It was an invitation to relationship. It was made in the lives of those disciples. Yet in a very profound way, it was a definite call out of their life. It was a call to leave everything and follow Jesus. This call was urgent and it still is. The call that Christ makes is still come, follow me. It is an urgent call. Secondly, the, the call of Jesus is a purposeful call. Back in chapter 1 again, we see this. We see the purpose of the call of Jesus in the words that he shared with Simon and Andrew. And I actually like the, the ESV rendering of, of verse 17 of Mark chapter 1, where he says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. That, that, that phraseology just captures the Greek tense a little bit better, where it is a sense of, of journey, of growth, of maturation, of a process of becoming more and more effective as a disciple of Jesus. In other words, Jesus is saying, I, come, follow me, and I will work in you and through you in increasing measure, transforming your life as you follow me more closely and serve me wholeheartedly. And that's the invitation today, isn't it? Graciously, that's the invitation today. Jesus doesn't wait until we have sorted ourselves out and then when we're worthy, calls us to himself. No, he comes into the mess of our lives, calls us to follow him, knowing that his spirit is enough to transform us more and more into the likeness of Christ. He is enough to forgive sin and then work in us to sanctify us. And so the call is not just a one-time call to salvation. It is certainly not less than that. Please do not hear me or mishear me. This is definitely a call to complete repentance and faith and trust in Christ. But it is a continual call to keep following. Keep letting him work in your life. Keep him as number one priority, as we'll see in a few minutes. That's the purpose. The purpose is come and keep coming. And the second purpose we see here is that Jesus will make them fishers of men. And yes, this, this is a, a clever play on words, if you like. Simon and Andrew are in the water with nets in their hand. And Jesus says, leave the nets and come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. This is, of course, a, a wonderful way which Jesus is showing. I'm going to teach you the infinite and eternal value of casting the gospel net to catch men for Christ. But there's an additional level of depth here when we also recognize the way the Old Testament uses imagery of fishing. More often than not, it's through the prophets. And actually, it's, it's in, in response to God's judgment coming. 
And so Jesus makes the connection but changes it slightly to say, God's judgment against sin is coming and I will send my disciples out as fishers of men to rescue them from that. Of course, the people are rescued because of the good news of Jesus Christ. But Jesus sends his disciples out with the urgent message of repentance. Because divine judgment against sin is coming. It's what he said himself when he declared his message and his purpose of mission in verse 15. The kingdom of God has come. Repent and believe the good news. Change is needed. Turning from sin is necessary because forgiveness is offered to those who do so. And so Jesus gives his disciples purpose because he calls them to his mission. Look at another example in chapter 3, and I'll put it on the screen for you. Chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, Jesus goes up onto a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed the twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. Did you see that? He appointed the twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out. See the purposes? That he, that he called them, that they might be with him, that they would know relationship with him, that that they would know life with him, and that he would send them out. The call to discipleship is purposeful. We see it again in chapter 6 when Jesus sends them out two by two and the result is recorded for us in verse 12. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. See, this is dramatic. This is spiritual work that Jesus' disciples are commissioned to do. And in fact, as we look at the life of Jesus, we see his disciples doing what Jesus had done to preach the good news of Christ, to demonstrate spiritual power. This is the purpose of the calling of Jesus. It's not, as I said earlier, it's not simply a one-time call to salvation, although it is certainly not less than that. But as Jesus calls his disciples to come to him, to follow him, and then to live their lives for him. It's a calling to the mission of Jesus in his world. And so Jesus has authority to call his disciples, and that call is urgent, that call is purposeful. Thirdly, That call is costly. Let's turn to to chapter 8, where we see those verses that we read earlier. We see the reality of Jesus laying out what it means to be his disciple. And that's helped actually by recognizing what else is going on around chapter 8 by the time we get to verse 34. You see, we've already looked at chapter 8 in the very first uh, session of our series, because in verse 27 down to verse 30, that's where we see Jesus declaring, or we see the identity of Jesus as Peter declares, you are the Messiah. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of God's salvation plan. He is the one whom the Jews have been waiting for for centuries. And now he's here. Jesus, you are him. And then in verse 31, Jesus picks that up and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You see, Jesus knows that, that as the Messiah, he must suffer, he must die. That was the way of salvation that God had planned. The disciples didn't quite get it, and we love Peter for that. But it's clear that Jesus, Jesus makes it clear that God's salvation plan is different from what some expected. 
His suffering was the way it had to be because his suffering was the only way that the penalty of sins could be fully paid for. It's the only way that forgiveness could be offered. It's the only way because a sacrifice had to be made. And Jesus was that sacrifice. And so the Messiah must suffer. And of course, that's not the end of the story and we'll get there in a minute. But, but each time, interestingly, each time in Mark's gospel that Jesus predicts his death in this very clear way, he then goes on to immediately talk about discipleship. So in chapter 8, he does it. In chapter 9, he does it. In chapter 10, he does it. He predicts his death and then teaches his disciples about what it means to be a genuine disciple of him. And he's showing here that to be a follower of him, to follow and to walk in the way of Jesus, is costly. The Messiah is the ultimate servant, and those who follow him must serve also. And so in verse 34, then he called the crowd to him, And along with his disciples said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. See, following Jesus means denying our own own ambitions, our own motivations, our own desires. It's a surrender of everything that we might want or we might plan for our lives and offering ourselves completely to Jesus for him to use for his purpose. It's denying ourselves. Secondly, it's taking up our cross. In other words, it's being prepared to follow the way of Jesus even into suffering. Because we know that faithfulness to Jesus is more important than our own personal comfort and convenience. And so we're willing to take up our cross. And thirdly, we follow. It means we walk in the way he walked. It means we let him reign in our lives. And so he leads us and he guides us along his path. We deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Christ. And there's so much overlap in those three things. I don't think they're three separate activities that we do. It's not some day that I deny myself, another day I take up my... No, no, no. We do it all together because we do it all as we give ourselves totally to Jesus. As we respond to his call to follow, just like the disciples in Mark 1, we leave everything to do just that. As he issues that command, follow me, we do. And that means we deny ourselves, we take up our cross, and we follow. Now, I'm not saying that that automatically means all of us must leave our families, leave our workplaces and follow Christ, although some of us might. But what I do mean is that it is the complete overhaul of our priorities, of our desires, of our hearts. See, Jesus calls, and because we recognize him as the one who has authority, we know that we can't take his call half-heartedly. We can't be casual in our response. To follow him is to give him our all. So, so either we are followers who have given our all or we're not. There is no middle ground where we half follow. No, we are a follower of Jesus or we are yet to be one. See, to be a follower of Jesus was to pledge complete allegiance to him. To sit under that authoritative teaching that he's given us that we've looked at before. And then to live that out, to model our lives on his now, please hear me, that, that doesn't mean that we therefore must be what we perceive to be the perfect disciple who never stumbles or falters in our following. God has graciously given us the example of the disciples in his word to show us that God can work mightily through broken people. But what it does mean is that we take seriously the call to follow. 
and the cost that that involves. It means we take seriously passages like Romans 6, 11 to 14. In the same way, conduct yourselves, or count yourselves, sorry, dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are no longer under the law, but under grace. See, as followers of Jesus, we offer ourselves to all of ourselves, every part of ourselves to him as an instrument of righteousness. We put ourselves into his hands. And as the New Testament very clearly makes it shown that we put to death sin. We put to death our old self. We put to death the desires that we once had because we are sold out for Jesus. He is our life. And as we'll see in a minute, we recognize when we come to Christ that these desires and the way that we were living our life led us to death. But Christ gives us life. And that's why the cost is worth paying. See, nowhere in Scripture does Jesus promise that following him is the path to physical comfort or material possession. Nowhere in Scripture will you find that promise. What you will find in Scripture is the the promise of his help, the promise of his equipping, the promise of his strengthening, the indwelling of his spirit as we fight temptation, as we seek to live lives that glorify him. He has given us his word to build our lives upon, and his word is good His life is good. And even though following him is costly, it is good. And so as we see, the call of Jesus is urgent. It is purposeful. Yes, it is costly. But hear me, it is joyful. It is joyful. We see this in verse 35 and 36 of what Jesus says here in Mark chapter 8. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? See, we we may initially find this a little confusing. But when we take into account all that Jesus has said, it becomes a bit clearer. Jesus is explaining that genuine faithful discipleship involves a complete reorientation of life as Jesus becomes our ultimate focus. He is the, the, the focus of our desires. He is the focus of our affections. And so the disciple of Jesus doesn't live with their eyes and their heart on this temporary physical world alone. The disciple of Jesus lives this physical life with the secure knowledge that a glorious eternal one is coming. You see, the, the terms in these verses, life, whoever loses his life will save it. And then who will forfeit their soul. The life and soul is actually the same Greek word. And so Christ is talking about the all-encompassing eternal life that he comes to give. And so if we seek to hold on to it ourselves, if we seek to, to manage our own life, we will eventually lose it. Because eternity is coming. And if we haven't given our life to Christ, then we will know hell. And we'll speak about that in a second. But the reality is the call of Christ is joyful because it's a call that saves us from that. And so it may feel like the cost of giving up our life, but actually because we get life in all its fullness for all eternity with God himself. 
And so we give up, yes, our personal ambitions. We give up all of the things that we long for in this life, the nice cars and the fancy houses and all of that. We, we, we give all that up. Not in the sense that we don't care about it, but it doesn't control us because our lives and our hearts are controlled by Christ as his spirit is working in us, transforming us more and more into the likeness of Jesus. That our lives display love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control because that is the life of the spirit within us. You see, the life, the eternal life that Jesus calls us to is so much more compelling and valuable and precious. And so it is a joyful call. Even as it is a costly call, it is joyful. Because it promises this settled, secure, joy-filled eternity with him. And that's why disciples can live their life for him now. Because it's not just the now that we live for. We know that in him, as his disciple, we know forgiveness from sin. We know peace with God. We know spiritual cleansing. And so the call of disciple, the call of Jesus, sorry, is to follow, is a deep and lasting, and it is eternal joy at the end. See, and we know this joy that comes before us because of the opposite that that Christ talks about here in verse 38. If anyone is ashamed of me or my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. See, Jesus is the Son of Man. He is the one who will come to judge the world and usher in his kingdom in all its fullness. And for his disciples, that will be a day of unceasing and unending joy. As they're welcomed into the fullness of that kingdom in all its majesty and purity and holiness. Yet for those who are not disciples of Christ, who have not accepted his forgiveness, they will be turned away to bear the penalty of sin for themselves. And it's precisely that dreadful end that Jesus seeks to save us from as he calls us to follow him. See, we we are all destined for hell. Because of our sin, that's where we deserve to go. But because Jesus lived and died and rose again, he can offer forgiveness. He has paid the penalty of sin. Therefore, for those who trust in him and come under his loving embrace, he has authority to forgive and authority, therefore, to grant eternal life. And that is joy. I was speaking to someone this week who's just recently come to faith. And after having a few conversations before they made that joyous decision, they were explaining to me that it's hard to explain, it's hard to understand the joy that comes until you know. It's hard to explain it to others, but once you know, I thought, yes, exactly. The joy of knowing Christ doesn't make everything happy, clappy, rosy in life. But the eternal peace, the presence of the Holy Spirit, enables us to work and go through life, whatever the, the massive challenges that may come our way. Because we know that we are not built solely for this life. Because we have joy in answering the call of Jesus Christ. And so we hear the call of Christ once again this morning. And hopefully we can recognize the urgent, purposeful, costly, yet joyful call that it is. It is a call to follow the one who saves. It's a call to give our all to him. It's our call to serve him with gladness wherever he may lead us. It's a call to make his good news known to the world around. 
And it's a call to an eternal life with him. And it's a call that, yes, joyously, many of us here have heard and responded to. And so my encouragement for you this morning is to keep following. Keep going. Keep hearing his voice through his word. Keep conversing with him through prayer. Keep living boldly and faithfully to his teaching and share his wonderful gospel with those around you. Follow and keep on following. And for those who have maybe heard that call to follow Jesus this morning, maybe for the first time, or certainly you feel the sense to, to, I need to respond to that this morning, please do so. Hear the invitation of Jesus to follow. Put your trust in him. Repent of sin and turn to Christ. Because he has taken the penalty of sin for us all and offers forgiveness and peace and a new life and a secure heavenly home. And so respond to him this morning. And if that's the case, can I invite you, respond to him and then tell someone. Come and speak to me after. Speak to the person who brought you this morning. Let's journey together because the wonderful thing, as as Jesus offers the call of discipleship, he invites us into his family. And we can encourage and support one another. As we follow him. So his call is urgent, purposeful, costly, and joyful. And Jesus Christ is the one who makes this call. And he is the only one who has authority to do so. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the authority that Christ has to call people to himself. Thank you that he can do so because he is the Messiah. He is the one who came to save and redeem and rescue your people. Thank you that he came offering himself, paying the sacrifice for sin in our place, so that he therefore can stand and say, come, follow me, and know forgiveness and know new life in me. And I pray, Father, for those of us who who know that call, who have responded to that call, who are following you, Lord, would you spur us on, I pray. Father, for those of us who have, who have stagnated slightly in our following of you, would you, would you show us the joy that you have called us to and help us to live zealously with that joy? And Father, for those who, who haven't responded to that call yet, yet have heard it clearly this morning, Father, I pray that you would work in their hearts and open their eyes to see the grace that you have offered, to see the urgent need of responding. And Lord, that in faith they would do so. And as they do, Father, I thank you that you welcome us in. And so we pray, God, that in all of these things, that as, as, as we seek to live lives that glorify you, as we seek to live under your supreme and pure and joy-giving authority, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified through our lives, wherever you place us, wherever you call us to, that we would know your help and your strength. We would know the work of your spirit in us. We would know the truth of your word implanted in us. And therefore, Father, you would receive the glory that you deserve. We thank you, our Father, for your grace and your love and your mercy. And we pray for your help, Lord. It's in your wonderful name we pray. Amen.